Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Uh, well, I'm good because uh, once again, uh, we get to talk about, uh, if not one of, probably my most favorite okay, uh, intellectual subject, and that is the United States Supreme Court. <laughs> yes, as we are doing. As we're doing our summer of SCOTUS, we've been um, this year, we're not talking as much about cases as we are about, although I feel certain that at the end of the summer, we're going to hit with a bomb and you'll get the last of these summer episodes will be, oh, and by the way, here are 18 cases that Augie's going to want to talk about. So be prepared for that, y'all. But but we're- Well, particularly um, because, Nia, at the point we're actually recording this episode, the Supreme Court still has not issued decisions in 33 cases right. for this particular term okay? right so it's all going to come I, I i have a theory about that which i want to get to in a minute but i wanted to finish saying we're going behind the robe behind the curtain yes right? we're behind we're, the curtain yes. we're trying to talk about the court in terms of um it, its makeup and its relationships the 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 court the, the court as justices like who are they yes these yes people? Um, and then, yes, there will be a wrap up at the end of the summer of the bombs that they drop before they go on vacation. And they're going to do, you know what they're going to do. They're going to drop that on the last possible day they can, and they're all going to go out of town. And it's going to be an analyst free for all. Sure. Where you yes. and Nina Totenberg and all those, and Jeffrey Tubin and all those other people pull apart all of the rulings. <laughs> Joe Biskupic and, and, and know, tell us it what is. it all means. Yes, um, Linda Greenhouse, etc., etc. Scotus blog, right? Like all yes, of Adam, Adam Liptek from the New York Times, Robert Barnes from the Washington Post, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, all these but people anyways, who who hobnob together, all of y'all. But anyway, I but today's episode is especially interesting to me because as president, I have decided that when I replace all of the Supremes, because I'm going to, that's, I've just decided, that's it. They're all retiring on my watch. We're going to start over. <laughs> um, I'm not going to let anyone from Harvard serve on the board, on the, on the Supreme Court. Nobody from Harvard. Nope. You got a, you got a problem with Harvard? Not particularly, but <laughs> I, I have a problem with this idea that only people who go to Harvard can be Supreme Court justices, right? Yeah. Like that. Like there's this route that you take to be a Supreme Court justice. And, and it seems to me that one of the things that you have to do is go to an elite, and I'm picking on Harvard, but I'm talking about it in terms of representing the sort of elite schools. Like, I think we should pluck people from good schools. I'm not saying we should go find the worst possible law schools and, and have those folks be on the Supreme Court. I'm not suggesting that. But maybe schools that aren't quite so 
exclusive maybe that's the word i want i would probably go even further okay i i i think it's more than just education right um you know and, and we're going to get into this nia okay <laughs> you know how do we define merit okay or how do we define talented or qualified supreme court justices right Right. Because as you pointed out, okay, on the modern Supreme Court, so let's say we date the modern Supreme Court of the last roughly 30 to 40 years, right? Okay. Okay, roughly the last 30 or 40 years. Most of the justices have followed a very particular, if you will, educational and career path. And it usually goes like this. They went to elite undergraduate institutions. They applied to and were accepted into elite law schools, usually Harvard, Yale, Princeton. The big two are Harvard, Harvard and Yale. Okay, so your comment about you know Harvard is well founded. Okay. Then they do clerkships for federal appeals court judges. Then they do a clerkship with a Supreme Court justice. Then they go to work in the Justice Department of the US federal government or a big law firm, right? One of those big corporate, okay, you know, they Bob they, and Bob and Bob and Bob and Bob, you know, yes, limited okay. or whatever it is, right? <laughs> yeah, they, you know, either in with New all York the names, <laughs> either in New York City or Washington, D.C. Occasionally they slum in Los Angeles, but it's usually, you know, the Interstate 95 corridor, right? And by the way, those big law firms make unbelievable, unbelievable amounts, of amounts of money, right? right? Yes. They charge by the hour more okay. than you and I make in a month. Month, like, right? Or yeah. they take a faculty position in a top 20 law school. Hmm. Then they get appointed to a lower federal court judgeship. And by the way, they no longer slum at state court positions. You know, they usually go now just to a lower federal court judgeship or an appeals lower or a federal appeals court position. And they serve their six, eight, 10 years, and then they get on a short list. That's the route. Right. That's the route, right? I mean, it was noteworthy, Nia, when Justice Amy Coney Barrett had not gone to Harvard or Yale. She was a graduate of the University of Notre Dame Law School, which, oh yeah, by the way, is a top 20 law school. Right, it's an elite school. <laughs> and, it's, and the thing is, it's not that I think there's anything wrong with elite law schools. Please hear me when I say this, listeners. There's nothing wrong with elite law schools. But if you only have people who come out of a very narrow view of the law, which is, which is taught at these institutions. 
And like, for instance, Harvard grinds out its students in all the same way. And they all are taught the same way to think about the law. So if eight of the nine on the court at any one time are from Harvard, then they have a very narrow view of, of the law in the sense that they have been trained to think about it in all in the same way. What I want there is somebody who was trained to think about it in a different way from a different from a different school. Okay, so you're talking about training and education. Again, I would go one step further, Nia, okay? They don't have a diversity of experience, well, right? Right. Okay, and so they lack a diversity of education. They have, a, you know, they lack diversity of experience. So, we get all the same types of people serving on the court. I mean, right. it, it, but it, we're, it, 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 and we're kind of sort of uh, uh, jumping the gun here a little bit. So let's go ahead and take a step back. This podcast episode, um, um, in the in the reason for it, is um, earlier this year um, when Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement from the Supreme Court, there was a pretty extensive discussion of who should replace Justice Breyer, okay? And in the press, Nee and I both noticed that there was a lot of discussion of quote-unquote merit, right? And I offhandedly joked to Nia uh, <laughs> one Friday morning before we recorded a different podcast episode oh, you're talking about the myth of merit. And Nia's eyes just got big. And she was just like, what do you mean? And I said, Nia, I don't think most Americans understand, okay, that the U.S. Constitution lists like no qualifications, no requirements for somebody to be a federal judge. Right. Okay. Yeah. We, sorry, listeners, we had that discussion off, off, uh, uh, we've mentioned it a few times since then in yes. podcast episodes, but these people do not have to have any educational requirement. They don't have an age requirement. They don't have to be a citizen of the United States. They have less requirements than to be president of the United States. Yes. And they have the job for life. That should be alarming to us as a country. Like that there's no, there's no bottom. There's no base. There's no, yeah, you don't even we, have to have been a lawyer. Like, and, and when I tell, when I tell people that, cause you know, they'll ask me, you know, what do you think of you know, President so-and-so nominating X person for the U.S. Supreme Court. And I'm like, okay, they more than likely will do fine. And they're like, but they didn't go, they didn't do this or they didn't do that. And I'm like, well, the U.S. Constitution doesn't even require them to be a lawyer or have any <laughs> judicial experience. And, and, and when I say that to people, their eyes just get huge. I'm like, well, it's not required in the Constitution. So if we think about the Constitution as the kind of sort of 
owner's manual for this vehicle known as the American <laughs> form of democracy, okay? Um, they don't have to be lawyers. They don't have to be judges. They don't have to have graduated from law school, right? Now, yeah. there are qualities that many of us could kind of sort of hope they possess, right? Well, and are and are customarily looked for for in terms of judging, right? So, um, uh, well-known uh, uh, political scientist, uh, judicial selection scholar Sheldon Goldman came up with a list of attributes, and many of these attributes strike me, okay, as good ones for judges to have, right, Nia? Right. You know, things like they're neutral to both parties in a case. That seems to be... Yeah, and if they're not neutral, they recuse themselves. They recuse themselves, Oh, right? this is my brother coming before me. I can't, yes. I can't honestly rule in this instance. Yes. Right? I love my you know, brother, so I'm going to step back and let somebody else judge. Yeah, one of my offspring is the attorney for one of the parties. I should probably recuse <laughs> myself. Right? right. Okay, particularly if, you know... They weren't my favorite. Anyway, no, I digress, right? <laughs> you know, we want fair-mindedness, right? We want them to be well-versed in the law, okay? But how do you measure that, right? How do you measure fair-mindedness, right? Um, the ability to think and write logically and lucidly. Yeah, which I think is incredibly value, valuable considering some of the opinions that I've read. Yes, I mean, where being able to communicate your ideas clearly, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, is really useful to the to the courts that will come behind you to try to implement. Or, or right, all Supreme or, Court decisions are affect lower court decisions, like that's lower court be, decisions, or or even practicing attorneys, right? How do you make sense of, you know, the latest missive from you know the you know, the nine Supremes about search and seizure if they don't write clearly, right? right. How, how do you give good legal advice, right? Personal integrity, right? I mean, as we discussed in a previous podcast episode, some of the justices weren't really good people. Right. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't be a lying liar that lies is what you should not okay. be. Um, uh, good physical and mental health. I mean, and this is important because as Nia, you just mentioned, you know, they have life tenure, right? So, right. You know, There's a reason that lifer prisoners work out because <laughs> yeah. you have to be physically fit and mentally fit in order to survive that environment. Yeah. I'm just suggesting, I'm not saying that the Supreme Court is like being in prison, except maybe slightly it is in well, some, some ways. Of the justices, as we've discussed. They viewed it that way because right. they didn't like the monkish existence of, you know, working on the Supreme Court. I would agree for sure that you need good mental health. Yes. Right? You need to, you, you probably need an excellent therapist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or, or really good spouses and friends. Exactly. I People mean, that you lean it. on who help you sort of yeah, put little, aside the pressure of the, the job pressure because it's or the, enormously the right you know the, the you know oh you we're going to get to pettiness in a little bit aren't we yeah well because you know yeah but i mean you know put again, nine you, smart people in a room and see what happens oh anyway it, it, but 
So, but I think the last two on on Goldman's list are the two most important, actually. Judicial temperament and the ability to handle judicial power sensibly. Now, in regards to judicial temperament, what Sheldon Goldman um, meant was this idea that um, you understand, okay, that you may not necessarily be the most important actor in a case. Right. Okay. Your job is to go ahead and settle a dispute. The case isn't about you. It's about the two parties that somehow have come to the conclusion that they are right and the other party's wrong and they need somebody to go ahead and find a solution. Okay? I just... Listeners, I'm so sorry to admit this to you, but I'm just going to go here. I occasionally watch Court Cam, which is okay. a YouTube channel about people who act out in court. And judicial temperament to me also has to do with remaining cool when people in the room are losing their minds. And part of what part of what that is 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 um the pressure of being in a court situation i think for most people is something they don't frequently experience and so they have outsized reactions to what goes on in court because how many of us are in court every day i mean like you can tell people who have been through the system before because they're a lot more chill than people who are going through it the first time because we don't, what you see on TV is very different than what happens in an actual courtroom. And so people get very emotional and the judge can't. The judge That's has right. to be totally chill. I'm sorry you're upset, but you can't use that language here. Calm down, right? Like they have to, they have to be that person because the other person, if they get mad, then it feeds off each other. And then all of a sudden, everybody's so yelling they got treat treat both both parties with respect right um you know try to explain the process because nia as you pointed out many people who go to court have never been there before okay um and you know so part of it is being an educator part of it is um uh being able to reduce the temperature in the room because again these are two people okay or two parties who feel rather strongly and their right. lives may depend upon it <laughs> Okay, et cetera. So they have a lot resting on the outcome of the case. Um, and they're looking to the judge or a collection of judges um, to, you know, make them whole again. And a judge might not be able to do that, but the judge is going to have to go ahead and say, this is what you can expect from the process. And this is what the court expects from you as somebody who has submitted to this process. Right. right? And then that last one, the ability to handle judicial power sensibly. <laughs> so I have to admit that some of the videos that are my favorite is so telling about me are when judges completely lose their cool and they yell, it's my courtroom and I will do what I damn well please. <laughs> You're like, okay, is that really how it works? <laughs> <laughs> now, technically, it is how it works. Because technically, the judge is in charge of that room and can do as they please. But handling judicial power sensibly, right? Being fair, being honest, being truthful, 
but also knowing when you are part of the problem and being able to step back and say, you know what, I have to recuse myself because I am, I am emotionally compromised in this situation. Well, this defendant go, makes me bonkers or whatever. Or, or go beyond the context that you're describing in regards to a trial court. Think about appellate courts, okay? Can you answer a question in an appeal? in a way that settles the appeal, but doesn't go any further, right? Right, doesn't relitigate so, the So, you know, you're talking about, so you're talking about judicial modesty, understanding that, you know, court processes are in some ways very undemocratic and they have a vital role in the democracy, but they're not democratic, <laughs> right? Right. Okay. So, you know, the, you know, the, the, this is the push and pull of judicial independence versus the fact that many judges, particularly all federal court judges, okay, are not held democratically accountable. Right. right. So how, how do you use that power sensibly so that you settle disputes, but you don't go too far in settling the dispute? Right. So what is, what is meant by reading the law? Okay, so to put this in context, for a good chunk of our country's history, well into the 20th century, okay, most Supreme Court justices did not have elite education, did not go to law school, okay? Many of them weren't even judges, right? And if you really want a good exposure to this, uh, listeners, I highly recommend um, uh, Ben Barton's, B-A-R-T-O-N, Ben Barton's recently published book, The Credential Court, okay? Most of our just, uh, justices of the United States Supreme Court throughout the 19th century and some into the uh, uh, 20th century read the law, meaning they reached out to a practicing attorney and asked that attorney for, um, you know, uh, uh, a syllabus, if you will, of books or treatises uh, on understanding the legal profession and legal theory and legal doctrine, okay? So they basically put they basically law schooled themselves. They law schooled themselves. And then they typically followed it up, Nia, by doing apprenticeships, right? Where they would work in a law office. And by the way, uh, listeners, most law offices throughout the 19th century, okay, were one or two person practice, practitioner offices. You yeah, these see, big law firms that you see now are are a modern. Yeah, they're a modern. The, that's a modern. Started, that's industrialization of the law. Yeah, industrialization right? like, of the law. That's right. <laughs> okay, so they did apprenticeships, and you know, they were part paralegal, part legal secretary, part clerk. Okay. Okay, so they did all of it. They did research. Yeah, they, they went and did the boring stuff at the courthouse where you just 
put in forms and because yes. I'm here to tell you listeners that the vast majority of what of what law firms do are fill out forms. Yes. You, they just have to be done at the right time in the right order with the right signatures or you get messed up. And so that's why you pay somebody to do that. But they they basically are a huge uh, uh, secretarial. I mean, like a lot of what they do is that kind of thing. What you see on TV where they're, you know, where they're jacques in court and they're doing all that stuff. That's the culmination of several months of boring reading and filing forms. (laughs) And after they did an apprenticeship, then they took the bar exam within their state. Okay. Do you Um, have, but if you don't have to be a lawyer, you don't have to have taken the bar exam in order to be a Supreme Court justice, right? No, you don't have to, but to practice law in all 50 states, you have to pass the bar. Right. Okay. And, well, and you again, have to pass the bar of that state. You, there okay. is no national bar. That is, that is correct. But right. again, most of our justices well into the turn of the 20th century, okay, were not judges before they became Supreme Court justices. They practiced the law. Right. They, they were just law. lawyers. They just okay. represented people and were lawyers. And they had varied professional experiences. Okay. So uh, the thing you're talking about with the elite school, the modern sort of style of going to, you know, elite undergraduate, elite graduate, yada, yada, yada. Do, did, I know that we have a couple of justices on the Supreme Court who grew up in less financially advantageous circumstances Do you like how i said that um oh let's let's be very clear here with our listeners two of our nine current supreme court justices grew up poor okay they were in right. the lower lower socioeconomic uh class um and who we're talking about is uh justices uh clarence thomas and sonia sotomayor okay but did they um, still follow that same pattern oh well, yeah yeah they did okay Um, because with, uh, Justice, uh, Sotomayor, um, you know, uh, you know, she did Princeton. (laughs) Okay. Ah. Um, um, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, Clarence Thomas, um, he got a scholarship to Holy Cross University. Uh, and if you don't know Holy Cross University, it's a really um, uh, prestigious, rigorous, okay, liberal arts undergraduate institution, okay, and then you went to Yale. Right? Okay, so went, it, so even if you're poor, you're kind of currently you're kind of expected to go through this. Sure. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and 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 there are various reasons why we've taken that turn, right? I mean, there are various reasons that scholars have pointed to. Um, But, you know, one of the most prominent ones is the fact that the the confirmation process has become so politicized that presidents are using these credentials as a way to go ahead and say, you may not like the ideological perspective of X nominee, but they check all the boxes, 
they have the credentials. So how can you vote against them? Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. So if you so so if you came up for let's say that you came up for nomination. Yeah. Um, you your I, I, I undergraduate would, I would have, was Penn. You, Pittsburgh University Pittsburgh. of Pittsburgh. And then UVA for your graduate work. No, Tech. Oh, right. Sorry, Virginia Tech for your graduate work. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, they, they would have a field day with me okay, uh, at the Senate Judiciary uh, uh, Committee hearings, right? Because they would be like... And you so, haven't served as any sort of judge in the lower... Yes. You haven't I didn't done have clerkship. any clerkships. Okay. Um, you know, I was a garden variety bureaucrat. Oh, they're going to love me when I make you chief justice. <laughs> they're going to they're going to love me. Maybe like the president <laughs> has lost her mind. And, and, and I will and, say. And, and they'll know, have all kinds of fun with me for the fact that for the last quarter century, I taught at two public universities. OK, um, Virginia Tech in Virginia Commonwealth University. They're going to be like, what? You couldn't, you- You couldn't you make couldn't it at an elite institution? Institution, right? Okay. Yeah, I'm going to be slapping down some senators. But also, <laughs> um, th what what's sort of frustrating to me about that is in part, something you mentioned before, and I know we're going to actually talk about it in our next episode, so I don't want to get too far into it, but the the chief justice needs a different skill set than yes. the other justices. The yes. other justices need to bring law chops, legal chops, right? They need to be able to make coherent legal arguments and understand coherent legal arguments and convince each other of things. They need to do all that. But the chief needs to be an administrator. Like your administrative law focus is perfect for the chief justice because that's running an organization. Like and it seems very, to me that we haven't figured that unique, out as a as a country. It's a unique organization. Right. I mean, I mean, Nia, one of the, the more unusual characteristics of the Supreme Court, and you mentioned this earlier in this podcast episode. All nine people who serve as Supreme Court justices, by and large, for roughly, you know, the last 35, 40 years, okay, have been told all their lives that they are the smartest kid in the room. Well, and they've also been in charge of things, right? Like they've been in charge of their courtroom. There's a certain, um, I don't even know what to almost a, a treatment of royalty in the way that courts, like everybody in the courtroom stands up when the judge comes in. Okay, but right? you're talking about trial courts, but most of these folks have been appellate court judges, right? Oh. So they haven't even had to deal with most of the, please excuse the expression, the unwashed masses. I was going to say the scum of the earth. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, the, 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 the general, if you will, us, populace. Us. Right? The, us. the hoi polloi. The, 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 right. The, uh, the bourgeois, rather. Us. The, the people. Yeah, right. Yeah, they have not had to deal with that. It's same with if they've been a professor oh my goodness. At, a, at an elite institution or if they've been 
in the Justice Department, like if they've been the Attorney General, when's the last time the Attorney General just sat down with somebody like you and me and heard out there? Never. They have minions for that. Like that's- I mean, the, 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 the current U.S. Attorney General is Merrick Garland. Before that, he was the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, the main administrative law court of the United States. Now, earlier on in his career, he was a U.S. attorney, okay, where he prosecuted people. Okay, So fine. he did have to actually talk to regular Yeah, but, but that's like 30 years removed, <laughs> right? <laughs> Okay. I, there's a thing you're going to get to later about what they ought to have to do now, which I, I just love and I can't wait. Sorry, I'm teasing it for the, for the listeners. But anyway, so these, the, mo, the, the sort of using the credentials to, to, um, it's a proxy. Okay. Okay. Uh, credentials have become a proxy in a very partisan battle. Okay. Okay. Um, because, Again, the assumption of presidents, of senators, of media, of interest groups is that federal judges today are basically policymakers who just wear funny clothes. As they treat them as part of the The congressional system as opposed to the judicial system. System, right? Okay. Okay. And and because that is the assumption, okay, credentials now act as kind of sort of like a shield for whomever a president picks, right? Gotcha. You know, so, you know, think about, uh, um, uh, I'll, I'll just pick on the last two presidents. President Joe Biden picked uh, federal court judge uh, uh, Brown Jackson to replace Stephen Breyer. And one of the first things he went ahead and mentioned was, you know, she went to Harvard, right? She was a clerk, right? She even clerked for the justice she's going to be replacing, Stephen Breyer, right? right. Okay. Tick, he, tick, tick on the boxes. Yeah, right. So, you know, so even if you got a problem with her ideology, okay? You can't ding still, her on the. She still has the quote unquote merit to serve as a justice, right? You know, um, uh, uh, Donald Trump, President Trump, uh, he went ahead and picked um, uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, right? Well, on one hand, Amy Coney Barrett didn't go to an Ivy League law school. She went to the University of Notre Dame. Oh my goodness, no, right? (laughs) But she clerked for Justice Scalia. She was a tenured law professor at the University of Notre Dame. And oh yeah, by the way, she had served a couple years on the, I believe, Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Check, 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 you know, check in the boxes. But right? can I ask a question about that? Yeah. So it sounds to me like, and correct me if I'm wrong, Donald Trump chose based on ideological viewpoints right she is a conservative yes and his party wanted conservatives put on the court and it sounds to me like i don't know if biden did this with with brown jackson but that that democrats tend to choose 
in terms of who's been sort of um, a party party line person. Yeah, so what you're talking about is what uh, judicial politics scholar David O'Brien identified as three different types of selection used by presidents, okay? So to as pick you who point, off the short list they're going to they're yeah, put forward. They're going to nominate to serve on the Supreme Court. Historically, Democratic presidents have tended to emphasize um, uh, what's known as patronage. You're going to reward those who have been faithful to the Democratic Party or who have been faithful to the president, okay? Um, in other words, Democratic presidents use judicial nominations as a way to kind of sort of appeal to the base of the Democratic Party. And cynically, uh, also it, for race relations. Well, I mean, and, and, that's, right? and that's part of it. Or and demographic get, relations. Yeah, we're going to get into more of that in our next podcast episode. But to give you an example of how this works, right? Now, listeners, you've heard me say this before because we did uh, a short podcast episode um, uh, about uh, President Biden's nomination of Judge Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. Yep, see our in the news episode on that. Okay, okay. I think she was eminently qualified to be nominated. Okay. Um, she has the judicial experience. Um, she has plenty of other legal experience. In fact, she's one of our more diverse legal experience candidate uh, nominees to the U.S. Supreme Court in years, right? But let's also be very clear here. President Biden, okay, was checking various, if you will, boxes that were important to constituencies of not only him, but the party, okay? She was a woman, an African-American woman, okay? Right. And he announced he was going to look for an African-American African -American woman. woman, right? Which it irritates me, and I think I said that in the episode, that it, it took away from her qualifications because sure did. he sure basically did. said, I'm going to go look for an African-American woman. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why don't you go look for a really good judge? And if she happens to be an African-American woman, that's awesome. But don't make the selling point because, because then you, because now she has to defend her qualifications forever. And yeah. that's not cool because she was eminently, she is eminently qualified to sit qualified on to serve on the Supreme Court. Right. right? right. Okay. But Democratic presidents, right? I mean, the, the, the best He chuckled that up a little bit, I think. Yeah, well, yeah. I, it, 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 again, see a previous podcast episode about you know, public right. relations, right? Okay. Dude, but, come on. Okay, but you know, think about, for instance, uh, uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you know, right? Um, you know, a lot of his nominees, okay, um, uh, to the Supreme Court were people who either did really good work for him or for the party. Yeah, but he ended up with a box of scorpions. Okay, okay, that's fine. But again, <laughs> that was his selection process. Right? <laughs> well, okay, right. Okay. We're talking about the selection process, not the outcome. Okay, and whether or not he, whether or not a president used merit, right? Because the first 
of FDR's nominees to the Supreme Court was Senator Hugo Black from the fine state of Alabama. Hugo Black never even finished law school. <laughs> Can okay. you imagine somebody coming up from in the before the, the Senate current now? Era? Yeah, right. Okay. Just that but, would be the end of that. One of the main reasons why FDR picked Hugo Black, Hugo Black was one of the first Southern Democratic senators to support the New Deal on the floor of the Senate. Ah, okay. Okay. So th that's patronage, right? Right. You, you did me a solid and you've continued to go ahead and do good work for me or the party or the party would be really happy with this pick. I'm going to reward you with the Supreme Court. Now, Hugo Black, okay, was considered one of the most important Supreme Court justices of the 20th century. Right. It doesn't mean that person isn't going to serve well. Well, okay, but they used politics. They used patronage. Conversely, Nia, as you pointed out, President Trump, like most Republican presidents since Richard Nixon, have tended to emphasize the ideology of a potential nominee, right? Now, do presidents, Republican or Democrat, ask potential nominees, how will you vote on X if you become justice? No, okay? You That's don't think they do, really? No. Even in the uh, private vetting process? Uh, everything that scholars have been able to unearth from what we have heard from those who've been in the rooms presidents, okay, consciously avoid asking those questions. Right? But I bet they imply well, their expectations. Well, there are ways to go ahead and figure out where a nominee falls, right? Right. Ideologically, you look at their previous opinions. So you, yeah, you look at their votes, you look at their opinions, you look at their law review articles. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, Hey, think about the think about this. Of the quote unquote conservatives on the current Supreme Court, Roberts, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Elito, they all worked in Republican presidential administrations, either in the Justice Department, okay, or as US attorneys. Okay. So you okay. know where they stand. Even clerkships. Okay. Oh, right. Who you clerk for would have. Yes. Even though many of the justices will actually pick one or two clerks every term who don't think like them. Right. But still, you, you yeah. that's how you would figure out so, what their ideology is. Okay. Okay. But Again, that's very political, right? Right. It's not to say that these aren't talented individuals who, who, who don't end up being really good justices, but let's face it, okay? Republican presidents are tending to emphasize ideology, right? So Democrats pick people- um, In terms of- In terms of favor and friendship and yep, buddy- and patronage. And, and Republicans pick people in terms of think like me, an ideological similar yes. worldview. Okay. okay, that's interesting. 
The third approach that O'Brien identified, and probably the last president who used it, was Eisenhower, was known as the bipartisan approach, okay? Um, and, you know, basically uh, the bipartisan approach was um, picking people to serve on the federal judiciary, okay, that kind of sort of courts favor with the opposition political party. You do it enough to where you can go ahead and say, you know, I did you this favor and on this nominee, I want you to trust me, right? I want you to go ahead and support. It's, okay. quid, pro, it's quid, quid pro quo, it's deal making, but again, right. it's not necessarily based on merit, right? And that's what I have to remind students, okay? When we talk about, you know, is this person qualified? Remember, this is a political process. The constitution gives the president a perk. And one of the perks of being president is you get to nominate people to serve on the federal judiciary. Unless? The Senate vote or rejects them. Well, or unless the Senate rejects your ability to do that sure in terms of but again even with what you just mentioned nia that's political right that's That's all about the the that was entirely about mitch mcconnell wanting to stop president obama from putting forth a nominee that was was a purely political affecting the balance on the supreme court right because what we what we're talking about, listeners, is um, uh, when Justice Scalia died, okay, um, in February of 2016. Which was an election year. Which was an election year, okay. Mitch McConnell said, we will not hear nominations because it should be the new president, not this current president, even though there was no precedent for that at all. Sorry, still a little bitter because... Well, that actually, was a purely political. Okay, but it, but again, I'm going to go ahead and, and go one step further in regards to the politics. Okay, what Mitch McConnell did, okay, was longer than what we've ever seen in the history of the United States, where Senate did not act on a presidential nominee um, for a Supreme Court vacancy. But unfortunately for Democrats, he was able to go ahead and quote a number of senator, Democratic senators who had said previously, if a vacancy occurred during a presidential election year, I might not agree to vote or act on the outgoing president's nominee, including prominent senators or former senators, Chuck Schumer, and wait for it, Joe Biden. Right, because of, okay. because you have to be careful about what, saying what benefits your party shouldn't and, benefit the other party, right? Like there's all these and, and again, I think it's I think it's wrong for both sides because in my oh, opinion, it, it, yeah. one of the presidential yes. one of the things that I will do when I am president is nominate, and then if they refuse to hear my nomination, then I will say okay, then I will find a way to punish the Senate 
until you hear my nomination. No other business will happen. No money will flow. Nothing will happen. Your constituents will lose their jobs and they will vote you out of office unless you hear my nomination. Because this is, I'm not going to play this game. But then again, my politics are probably more like slash and burn than other people's politics. Okay, but, but, but Nia, let's just say hypothetically a president did what you just said, okay? Again, I've said this to my students. President Obama had some choice. He didn't just have to sit there and take it, okay? But he was not willing to if you will, spend valuable political capital on his nominee, Merrick Garland. Right. He was unwilling to do it. I say, you know, Mitch McConnell was playing a high game, high risk bluff. Yeah, it was a game of chicken. Okay, I mean, or, or poker, right? And he won. Mitch McConnell was bluffing, right? And instead of the president and the Democratic Party calling him on it, okay, they chose to go ahead and continue to do business in the Senate. But as you pointed out, you know, President Obama could have easily gone ahead and said, okay, fine, you don't want to act on my nominee. If the United States Congress uh, uh, passes any spending bills, I'm going to veto them. I will continue to veto them, even if it shuts down the government until they give a hearing, okay, on, again, an otherwise perfectly competent nominee right. to serve on the Supreme Court. And innocuous. Merrick oh. Garland, Merrick Garland, right, he is the vanilla pudding of, of judicial nominees. I mean, which he, brings me to a question yes. that I want to ask you. How often are, are nominees rejected? Oh, um, uh, the, the figure is uh, less than like 2%. Okay. It's so less if than you 2%. can get somebody in front of the, the Senate. Yes. Other than, so when in, in, did in the process in, start being so contentious? what I think of as brutal? So contentious, politicized? Yeah. Yes. Most scholars um, um, uh, go back to... Um, the uh, nomination of Abe Fortas to be Chief Justice in 1968 as when this process really went off the rails. So- uh, Oh, and a, we've discussed in a previous just a quick episode. Yeah, just a quick history. Earl Warren announced that he was gonna step down as Chief Justice and he did it so Lyndon Johnson could pick his successor as Chief Justice. Lyndon Johnson picked his good friend, Abe Fortas, who was already serving on the Supreme Court, okay, to be the next Chief Justice, okay? So and he had passed the question of merit. Oh, because sure. Because he was already he, there. He was, he was already, already there, okay? But a combination of Southern Democrats, okay, and Republicans who were still upset with the Warren Court Civil Rights Revolution, from Brown versus Board to expanding those accused of crime, their rights, to expansion of voting rights, okay? It said, you know, letting criminals off on technicalities. They were so upset with the Warren Court, they punished Abe Fortas, okay? 
And they made the hearing wildly contentious? They made it wildly contentious. They never officially took a vote on his nomination. It never, wow. got, it never got out of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Okay. And the Democrats stewed, okay, and got angrier and angrier until they had their opportunity of payback. And their payback was with what nominee put forward by President Ronald Reagan, Nina. Oh, Mr. Bork. Robert Bork. Again, eminently qualified. In fact, when he had been put up for a vote to serve on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, I think there were only two or three senators who voted against him. Okay? But he gets nominated to serve on the Supreme Court, and the Democrats went after him. And Robert Bork gave them all the ammunition he wanted, or they wanted, because during his Senate Judiciary hearings, he actually <laughs> rhetorically like fought with Senate Democrats on the Senate ah. Judiciary Committee. And afterwards, okay, pretty much every nominee to the United States, uh, United States Supreme Court, when they appear in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, basically give evasive non-answers to questions. I can't answer that question, Senator, because if that uh, issue gets in front of the Supreme Court, I don't want to prejudge the issue. That's actually, that's actually no, now that is a, a perfectly legitimate answer. That's, that's what you should be saying, which is I'm not going to judge a case until I see the merits of the case. Like I'm not. But what they're doing is in reaction to what happened to Bork. Which right, is, they're avoiding being pinned down avoiding, on anything. Yeah, and, and it's known as the Ginsburg rule. Because when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was nominated to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court, she responded over a hundred times to senators' questions. I can't comment on that, Senator, because if the issue gets in front of the Supreme Court, um, I don't want to prejudge the law or the Constitution, et cetera. And every nominee sense basically does that. So, I mean... Just to sum up, let me yes. let me ask a final question here. Yeah. So basically what you're saying is that the you can have all the merit in the world. You can have you can have ticked every box. You can be from the elite institutions. You can have been a fantastic Supreme I mean, a, a lower district, you know, district court judge or whatever it is. Uh, you can have been all these things. In fact, they can have voted you onto the court of a, of a something like the 10th district or the 9th district with 100 to zero, right? Yes. But when you get into the, in the Senate for the Supreme Court, it's oh. all about the politics. Yes. Everything goes out the window and it's about how the Senate feels about the president at that given time. Yes. You are you are literally a pawn on yes. that chessboard, and you have it's not even about you. It's not anything about you. It's about how you be you have become who, a whatever proxy. party is the is, yes. is the lead in the in the Senate feels about the president. You've become a proxy in a larger political battle, and both political parties now do it. Right. Okay? And, and it's a shame. Oh, I'm sure that's a bipartisan thing. 
Oh, I mean, it, it, it's tit for tat. It's it's play. It's playground justice. Okay. But it's humiliating uh, to the to the nominees. It's humiliating to the nominees, and it and it doesn't serve the public or the judicial branch all that well, right? You know, because and I'm going to go back to Ben Barton's book. You know, Ben Barton's argument is. Are we getting better judges because they're so well credentialed? You know, we're not getting, I mean, I'm going to use Sandra Day O'Connor, right? I, I, I have said this publicly in a number of fora. Today, Sandra Day O'Connor would probably never even be nominated, let alone confirmed. Really? Yeah. Okay, she went to Stanford. Okay, but okay, she was a politician before she became a state judge, right? Uh, you, you imagine all of her votes as a politician, as a member of the Arizona State Legislature, would be debated by the Senate. I see. They would relitigate her entire career. Yes. In what order would to. And it's in order to score points against yes. political opponent. It has nothing to nothing do, with, to do her, with whether or not she would be a good judge. Which is she was a good judge. She was a great judge. Okay. Um, did she always rule the way I wanted her to? No. But she brought something to the Supreme Court that we don't have very much of today, which is she understand, she understood that sometimes an answering narrow questions is better than answering big, broad questions, okay, that bind the entire country, right. okay? She was a swing voter, okay? And she was but a moderate. She, and she, and it, she forced both ideological ends on the court to compromise. <laughs> oh, good Lord, compromise? Right? What? Okay. Say it isn't so heresy, I tell you, heresy. Okay, but I mean, I, I don't think you would, right? You know, one of my favorite justices, Robert Jackson, okay, he would never be considered today. Why? Because he never finished law school. Right. Okay. He never finished law school, right? He was a, uh, he was a solo, solo practitioner in upstate New York. Okay. I'm going to end on a positive note, though. Okay. All right. The crap that they put Lewis Brandeis through would not happen today. Yeah, because just uh, like the, just like uh, Justice Brown Jackson, her race was not brought into question. Yeah, because it, even if it was in the minds of some of the people in that room, and I don't know because I don't know what's in their heart and their mind. What I do know it is that it is no longer acceptable to publicly say. I mean, didn't Louis Brandeis have one of the most anti-Semitic hearings? Yeah, uh, listeners, what Nia is referencing is uh, Louis Brandeis, uh, when he was nominated by w President Woodrow Wilson to serve on the Supreme Court um, in the 19-teens, was the first nominee who was Jewish to serve on the court. And um, uh, it was accepted practice before his nomination that nom nominees to the court never appeared in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. I mean, oh, the, hearing, okay. the hearings were basically pro forma, 
right? Um, we got a name. It looks fine. Let's move yeah. on. Okay, but um, uh, his process took weeks, and you had uh, uh, individuals called to testify who went ahead and just were openly anti-Semitic. Okay, you can't put a Jew on the court. You can't put a Jew on the court. Okay. It'll be the uh, end. It'll be the end of the court, right? Blah, okay. blah, 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 blah. You know, you know, you know what Jews are Jews are like. Okay. Right. That uh, kind of dumb crap. You know, you know the, the kind of anti-Semitic tropes um, that have been around for you know hundreds of years, right? And he had to suffer through all of that. Okay. Um, even though, again, in terms of qualifications, okay. He was more than qualified. I oh. mean, in fact, it was a step down in terms of his legal career, <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I mean? rulings, I mean, his rulings stand the test of time, right? He was a great, a great justice. But I, I at least, I, I, I do think that we should say at least even, sorry, the, the process is less um, about things like that now. And and because it's more about how the Congress feels about the president, it's an indictment of the president, not an indictment of the candidate for the most part. And so the candidates are not treated, I would argue, um, as vilely as they have been in some cases. It's oh, a different and Augie's, Augie's going to say, no, I'm wrong on that. No, no, it's a different kind of vile, right? I mean, it's not as open Okay, in regards okay, that's to, fair. It's a different kind okay, of vial. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, but I mean, you know, some of the things, some of the, the the things that were said to, for instance, you know, Judge Brown Jackson or Judge Coney Barrett, right? I mean, a couple of the Democratic senators on the Senate Judiciary Committee asked Coney Barrett about her religion. The U.S. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Uh, you know, the okay, U.S. Okay, so never mind. Then I'm okay, totally well, wrong. But, but, but it's. But it's a different kinds of different kind of vial, right? Right. But it's still. I, I think as a political scientist, I don't think the process serves anybody really well today, right? Agreed. Uh, because I would, you know, when we talk about merit, okay, I almost immediately I go ahead and I ask the follow-up question: How are you defining merit? Exactly. Right? Okay, because, um, uh, you know, what I would love to go ahead and see at a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing is senators asking not gotcha questions, but meaningful questions of the nominees to see how they think, to see how they do they act, do they act with judicial temperament. Okay. Right. I'm going to give you this this um, this scenario, right? A hypothetical yes. question. Can you tell me how you would pull it apart? How you would approach it? Do yeah. you would you start with research? Would you start with like what do you? What's your process? You know, what in arriving at your decision because you know, what I, I want you know to what know. precedents are you considering? What sources right. of law would you draw upon? Okay. Yeah, that but, would be cool. Okay. But you and I both come out of the educational system and we care more about teaching people how to think than teaching people what to think. 
and 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 also you and I uh, <laughs> have talked about, you know, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice if the Senate Judiciary hearings were like a meaningful job interview? Right. I'm okay. going to actually ask you real questions that, and, like, and, how and do I'm, you handle I, adversity? How do you handle situations where? Where I'm actually interested in your answer, not because I'm trying to find a reason to reject you. Right. Or to go ahead and put you up on a pedestal. Okay. Right. But to actually find out, okay, are you ready to be a Supreme Court justice? And it gets at the idea of judicial temperament. Yeah, which probably right. is the most important thing, even though I think you have you have a question at the end of the of your notes, which I think is probably the question we should leave people with, which is, is merit in the eye of the beholder? And I, yeah. I, I think it I think it is in many ways. For me, the most important thing is temperament. Can you get along with the other eight people in the room? Can you make reasoned arguments? Can you accept when you lose gracefully? Right. Like. How do you handle yourself as a human? Because that's going to determine whether the court can work together or not. Like if you get your, I keep referencing your scorpions because I just love that idea of, you know, and it's also because they wear black, um, right? These, these sort of angry scorpions fighting with each other. Nothing happened, nothing gets done when it's like that. Nothing, it, it doesn't move the people's work forward. Yeah. And so I, that for me is the most important, but it may not be. Well, I mean, and, and for me, you've heard me say this before, um, uh, you know, uh, Goldman's ability to handle judicial power sensibly, right? Um, right. Maybe it's because I'm too much of a moderate, <laughs> okay? And, and, and maybe because, you know, of all my years of study, I've seen government officials and government institutions um, go too far. Right. Um, but so for you, but, it's that it's that. Okay, point. but but but, but th that's the kind of thing you would like to see exposed and discussed. Okay, at Senate Judiciary confirmation hearings, but you don't get that because it's just an elaborate, you know, political play. Right. Okay. Well, and I also uh, just to throw out here as my last my last point for the for the episode is it seems to me like the senators are hiring people for a job they themselves could not do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is a dangerous that is a dangerous way to hire people for a job. I don't hire construction workers because I don't know how to be a construction worker. I wouldn't know the first thing about judging the merit of a person's ability to build a home <clears throat> or to build anything, because I don't know how to build anything. Please trust me when I tell you I can barely put together Legos, let alone, right? Hey, you know, so like know your I, I, Ikea furniture instructions, okay? Um, even when they're written in English, still read like a foreign language to me right. my mind I'm glad they just, have pictures yeah but my it still mind doesn't just, help my mind just doesn't work that way right so right. when i am picking for instance people to work on my home or to work on my automobile you know i will talk to others right you consult an expert you know and or friends and I, at least yeah and and i don't see that all that often in the Senate Judiciary Committee, 
where they're, you know, where the senators, or, or for that matter, presidents, right? I mean, or, nothing, oh, nothing. I don't know, but the other Supreme Court justices, I mean, yeah, they get right. no say in this. Yeah, at all. right. I mean, or someone or, has imposed on them whether they want that person or not, whether they think they can work with that person. I mean, like, really, wouldn't you think that they would at least get some level of input of, oh, I don't know if or, this person's going to work out with us or not. Or reach out to, you know, to, to the justices and say, hey, what do you guys need with, right. with a future justice, right? Do you need somebody with criminal defense background? Do you need something with... You know, uh, uh, um, yeah, exactly. It's weird to me that the Senate is the one that, like, <laughs> wait, so 100 people who could not serve on the Supreme Court are going to pick the next person who serves on the Supreme Court? Or, or that doesn't that, seem right. I mean, at least the Constitution clearly says this is a perk given to presidents, but let's face it, many presidents, okay. You know, wouldn't if you serve have, on the Supreme Court, Supreme couldn't Court serve either. on the Supreme Court either. So, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it is a strange, if you will, selection process. I mean, when you really think about it, right? I mean, to think about the number of presidents, okay, who, had, who knew absolutely next to nothing about the judicial branch, right? Right. Okay. And they're going to pick a person, they're going to put pick them up a before a hundred chuckleheads who are going to say, well, I have many thoughts and feelings about that. I don't care what your thoughts and feelings are about it. You don't know how to be a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, so it's a weird system we have. I mean, you, you hope I, I'm the, surprised that other countries don't laugh at us behind our back. You know what's really funny is how much other countries, Nia, okay, cherish, if you will, some of the values like judicial independence, you know, right. where their judiciary doesn't get, you know, completely overturned because a prime minister or president doesn't like a ruling right although we're it, having less and less of that but yeah i that, mean we're having true. less and less independence which yeah yeah which, as which they is, become embroiled in the political process we're we're sliding from the beacon on the hill to maybe uh like a a lantern halfway down yeah i mean and that's one of the reasons why i i think handle judicial power sensibly is you know every once in a while the federal courts need to go ahead and say um you know this isn't our circus okay <laughs> you know you know this isn't our clown show right right okay y'all get back in the car and go somewhere else <laughs> yeah right you know we didn't get hired for this birthday party so you know we're moving on to the you know the next one right uh because oh, you know goodness when they do get involved that's when the politicians, the media, the interest groups all come out, you know, with, you know, knives and arrows and occasionally guns and say, well, you guys interjected yourselves into this. So now you're going to, you know, encounter what, you know, other politicians deal with. Right. Oh, this gets so complicated at times. But I mean, it does go back to how do you define merit? Right. Right. I mean, who deserves uh, to be on the court? Yeah. And what and, do we want from the court? What do we expect from the court? Yeah, because, um, uh, you know, again, you and I are products of higher education, right? You know, you and I have a conversation every week, okay, and we reflect the fact that we have multiple degrees, both of us, right? But at the same time, we're aware that there are some really smart people 
okay, who don't necessarily follow the same career path as we did. Right. And they shouldn't be rejected simply because they didn't follow the same educational, you know, in career path, because there are a lot of different ways to define merit. Okay. Exactly. Um, and, and, and that's why um, I, I, I really, you know, the myth of merit, right? <laughs> it's just, it just it, it doesn't, just, maybe just, what I'll do is pick a whole bunch of people who never even went to law school. Hmm. Uh, All right, or, people, I need to be president. Let's start working on it. <laughs> All right, Nia. And on that terrifying note, we'll see listeners next time. <laughs> Thanks, Nia. Thank you, Augie. <laughs> You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.